I've entitled our thoughts this morning, A Picture of Providence, and I invite you to turn with me back to the book of Ruth today to Ruth chapter 2. As you know, last week we began a series through this book together, the book of Ruth. We considered the great tragedy, the great calamity of the book of Ruth in last week's message. And just to review, as we began this journey through this beautiful book, it begins with a great trial in the life of a woman named Naomi. Now just to review, there's a man from Bethlehem named Elimelech. Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, they leave Bethlehem, which as you know is the town in which Jesus Christ, our Savior, would be born hundreds of years later. It's the town that in just a few generations David would be born in. It's the place of David's nativity. It's a very famous city in today's time, though it was little among the nations in the time of the Old Testament. This man, Elimelech, and Naomi, his wife, they leave Bethlehem, which means house of bread, because there was a famine in the land. And we briefly discussed how what God would have us to do in a time of famine, what God would have us to do in a time of suffering is to be faithful to his house, to be faithful to our Bethlehem, to be faithful to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ where we dwell, to stay with the people of God. But unlike what we should do and unlike what they probably should have done, Elimelech, in a time of famine, goes to the land of Moab, and he takes his family with him there. And they spend a decade there. Elimelech, as you know, as we introduce the calamity of the book of Ruth, the problem that sets up everything else that took place in this book, he dies. And then after a period of years, his sons died, and they leave Naomi. They leave these two daughters-in-law of Naomi and Elimelech. And you have three women in a day when there was no social security, there was no retirement benefits, and because of the structure of the world at that time, these three women were left to fend for themselves in a day when they couldn't work, they couldn't own things the way that you can own things today. Understand it was not a good time in the world for the rights of those who were women. Now, you might wonder, why does God and his law not set that straight? Why does he not deal with that? And there are many issues in the word of God that the Lord suffered through, but he gave us guidelines to deal more effectively in a godly way with the cultures of the world at the time. And how women were given inheritances and such in that day fell in that category. There were other things such as servitude in the New Testament and the Old Testament that God doesn't absolutely immediately eradicate, but he gives us guidelines and principles by which to deal with them in a Christ-like way. Now, one of the things that we'll discuss today is the way, even though because of the structures of the cultures of men, even though women didn't have the rights that they have in today's time, God implemented systems of providence and protection for the fatherless and the widows in his nation. And I think in every righteous, godly nation, we ought to take care 
of the fatherless and the widows, even by the mandate of the government, as was in God's own kingdom that God had established the Old Testament theocracy, the nation of Israel. God gave provision for them in the nation of Israel. After the two sons and Elimelech had died, Naomi returns home very bitter. One of her daughters-in-law, Orpah, decided to go back to Moab and stay in Moab, back to her parents' home and the lifestyle that she lived before she had married this young man. But Ruth was a woman of faith, and as we concluded last week's message, she gives us one of the most beautiful pictures of discipleship and following Christ that we have in the Word of God. She says to Naomi, I'm not going to depart from you. Your people will be my people. Your land will be my land. Your God will be my God until death do us part. And so Ruth accompanies Naomi back. Naomi returns home very bitter. As we left off last week, she told people no longer to call her Naomi, which meant pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter, because she thought God had dealt very bitterly with her, and she was very bitter in her circumstance. Bitterness is a killer of joy. You cannot be bitter and joyful at the same time. And God's Word calls on us as disciples of Christ to rejoice, and again I say, rejoice. Joy is to be a part of our everyday lives as disciples of Christ despite our circumstances. This is why the apostles, though they were imprisoned, they could sing praises to God in the midst of a jail cell, incarcerated for their faith. They had joy in Christ, and they rejoiced in their circumstances despite their circumstances because of Christ. Again, the primary focus of this book, we learn number one, that despite our situation, God watches over us. And so the lesson that we learn, number one, is that God watches over us. His watch care is a real factor, a part of our life, despite the calamity. His watch care doesn't take away sometimes the calamity, but he watches over us in the midst of it. And number two, one great lesson of the book of Ruth, one more important than even his watch care over us in our daily lives, this is an important story in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ, because we are reading of his ancestors, things that God brought to pass to bring Jesus into the world hundreds of years later, and this story strongly foreshadows Jesus' redemptive work as it begins to play itself out in the latter two chapters of the book of Ruth. We turn to Ruth chapter 2 and verse 1, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Now, since Sister Hannah and Sister Bethany were absent in last week's message, I have to repeat this terrible dad joke. Up until this point in Boaz's life, he was ruthless. And you all get the joke. that We don't have instruments here, but if we did, somebody could go, dum jump just a couple of snare hits and a cymbal crash because of the lameness of that joke. Now, he didn't have a, a Ruth in his life is the meaning of that lame, lame dad joke. 
Well, since you missed it, I have to give it to you again today. You can thumbs up and, and clap. Bethany, thumbs up. Hannah shakes her head in disgust. So my job here as a preacher today is done. This man, Boaz, you find a few things about him here, but some other things about him will reveal themselves to us as we begin studying through this first chapter. His character, his faith, his devotion to his God and the word of his God. This man is a near kinsman to the husband of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. And what this does is it puts him in an interesting position, as we'll study later in this series through Ruth, of the role of a near kinsman redeemer. The role of a near kinsman redeemer. And as we begin talking about a near kinsman redeemer, this begins to foreshadow for us how this man is going to depict even the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in saving us from our sins. You see, you and I were redeemed from sin. And this role of Boaz in the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz is going to foreshadow even the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in redeeming us. We were redeemed by a near kinsman redeemer. He is referred to as our husband. He is referred to as our brother, our apostle, our priest, and our friend, our Lord Jesus Christ. This man Boaz is a very wealthy man, and he's a very godly man as evidenced throughout this book. He's described here as a mighty man of wealth. So he was a mighty man. He was a leader in their community, this small town of Bethlehem. He was a, a man who was well known. He has maidens. He has servants who glean his field. He has hired laborers who work for him. He was a business owner, you might say. He was a man of great power in this community. He was a mover and a shaker, you might say. Now, I read in one commentary as I was studying for this, you find in verse 2, Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me go now into the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose eyes... I shall find grace. And she says unto her, Go, my daughter. But I read in some of the commentaries that God works many times through chance events. But I'm going to go a step beyond the words of that good commentator. This is no chance event. Ruth doesn't merely by happenstance wander into the fields of Boaz. God is working in the life of this woman through his providence to put her exactly in the position that she needs to be, number one, to care for her and for Naomi, number two, to bring the Lord Jesus Christ into the world because this is a part of Jesus' family tree. Now, Jesus is the Lord of glory, and we know that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin named Mary, but that virgin named Mary had a biological tie all the way back to Adam, a biological tie to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and a biological tie to David, who would be from the eventual union of Ruth and Boaz. So God is working. This is not chance. This is not happenstance. This, my friends, is God's divine providence. 
Now, let me just stop us right here and, and think of the backdrop of our nation's troubles at the time, whether it be pandemic or economic trouble, or whether it be violence in the streets. When calamity occurs in the world, child of God, look for the hand of God working in the faithful. This woman was faithful, and God worked in her life. Now, by the way, if they had stayed in Moab, do you think God would have worked to that degree in their life? No. God works in our lives when we faithfully pursue Him and seek Him. He works in our lives when we're disobedient too, but that's usually in the form of chastening, and that's where a lot of the calamity of the world comes into being anyway. God is working in the life of this faithful woman. This is all, this is all surrounding this faithful stranger to the nation of Israel, the Moabitess Ruth. Verses 2 and 3, Ruth the Moabite has said unto Naomi, Let me go now into the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose eyes I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. Now, if you know the story of Ruth and Boaz, you know that not only did she find grace in his eyes as a provider, she found grace in his eyes as he becomes eventually her near kinsman redeemer and raises up offspring for her departed husband. And we'll look at the laws of Israel about raising up seed to a departed loved one in a future message from this book. But at this point, she's not wondering anything about a kinsman redeemer. What does she mean, find grace in his eyes? In the nation of Israel, God gave special provision for those who were fatherless, those who were widows, those who were poor, and the strangers, so that if there was an impoverished person in a community, those that had much were to provide for those who did not. I want to direct you to the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field. Neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. Thou shalt not glean the vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. And I want you to notice, if you're looking at your scriptures, the colon there, following that colon in this verse 10 of Leviticus 19, what does God say? I am the Lord thy God. You can imagine when someone read that, maybe they're greedy, maybe they're the type of person like I am that tries to accumulate as much what-if material. We all have lived through the what-if right now in the present life. What if I don't have enough hand sanitizer? What if I don't have enough Clorox? What if I don't have enough this or that food? We're concerned about that. As we studied the manna, one of the reasons that I wanted to look at the manna was because we're to beg God, give us this day our daily bread. We're to be concerned with today and trust God today and trust God tomorrow. But God tells them in the law, when you harvest your field, you don't take everything out of it. Now, we have this complicated machinery in the world today, and it, it will actually take it down to the dirt. And it'll sort through the corn and the stalks and all the things that are in the field, whatever it is that a person is harvesting. 
But God tells him, you're not going to totally glean it. In fact, you're not even going to touch the corners because that I have reserved for the poor. I have reserved it for the stranger. Now, what is a stranger? Sometimes when we think about the nation of Israel, we might think that because God ran the Canaanite out of the land, and by the way, God ran the Canaanite out of the land with hornets before he sent Israel in to conquer it. Most of them were driven away. It was the stubborn ones that were dealt with after they went in. You might be thinking because of their restriction on marrying people who were pagans that perhaps it wasn't a welcoming place by God's decree. But no, notice what God says. You are to leave the field, the corners, unharvested for the stranger and the poor. Strangers are people who were aliens, as you might say, to the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, in Israel, if a Moabite... If a Canaanite, if they're traveling through the land, you are to treat them kindly, even to the extent that you don't harvest the corners of your field so they can eat when they pass through. Now, in our day and age, how would we react to that if God said, a portion of what you have is going to be taken from you and given to people who are poor? Well, we would usually say, that's mine. Taxation is theft. You're not allowed to take something that's mine because that's what I believe politically. I'm going to tell you that if you read the Word of God and you take it unbiasedly, there are things in this book that make conservatives and liberals uncomfortable because the Word of God presents God's standard, and neither faction in America today is lined up perfectly with what the Word of God says. I'm going to quote Vody Balcom. If you can't say amen, say ouch. Neither perfectly align with the Word of God. God says it's a good thing when a portion of what we have is given to those that are poor. God doesn't say a portion of what we have ought to be taken from us and given to the lazy. The Word of God says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Read the book of Proverbs. Look up the word sluggard. You know, the root word of sluggard is what? Slug. Never seen a slug in a hurry. It literally, it has no feet to drag, but it drags itself across the ground at a very slow-moving pace. You have warnings against the slothful. Have you ever seen a sloth? How quickly does a slothful move, or a sloth move? It doesn't move very quickly at all. The Word of God commends hard work. The Word of God also commands charity. And so when Ruth says that I'm going to go and find someone in whose eyes I'll have grace, what she's talking about, I'm going to go look for a field to glean that belongs to someone else, that was planted by someone else, that was tended to by someone else. But by the law of God, she had a legal right to go and to partake of the corners of that field simply because God said it's a good thing to do. And again, if anyone argues with that, I am the Lord thy God. Well, what do you mean I have to do that? That's it. There is... Parents, do you ever get asked something by your child, and then they say, why do I have to do that? And you say, because I said so. That is God saying, because I said so. Why do I have to give the corner of my field? I planted that. I am the Lord thy God. I'll stop.
laboring the point. I'll cease off my meddling. Leviticus 23 gives us a similar commandment. You find these occasionally in the Word of God. By the way, God told them at one point, because you've dealt harshly with the fatherless and you've dealt harshly with the widows, your children will be fatherless and the widows. And what is he telling them? Men, because you didn't do this, now you're going to suffer in the same way that the people that you oppressed suffered, because you should have helped them. I was thinking about this the other day. The Word of God says that laws are given because of unrighteousness. If people naturally took care of other people, you wouldn't need a law that says, give them the corner of your field. Why are laws like this in existence? Because people didn't give them the corner of their field. We're not as naturally charitable as we ought to be. And I'm talking to me. Leviticus chapter 23. When you reap the harvest of your land, verse 22, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest, neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of thy harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. God repeats himself. Deuteronomy chapter 14. This is similar but different. Rather than the corners of the field, this involves God's provision through what was their national taxation system, which was the tithe. Sometimes Christians ask, are we to tithe today? The, the Word of God in the New Testament is very clear that we are to give today. There's never a percentage that is given, that is stipulated on how much we should give, but we are to give. We are to give to the cause of the Lord, and we are to give to the poor, just like it is in this day. But you have to remember that they were given a taxation system because this is a physical nation. Do we have a taxation system in America today? Yes. By the way, Romans chapter 13 says that we pay tribute so that the powers that be will be equipped to be a terror unto evil. One of the purposes of taxes in the world today is that government has the ability, the funding, the means to terrorize evil. Now, I'm not going to get on a hot-button political topic, but those that protect us from crime ought not be defunded, so says the word of the Lord. And I'll leave it at that. Deuteronomy chapter 14 gives them rules on diet, what you can eat, what you can't eat. Thou shalt truly tithe all the increase of thy seed that the field bringeth forth year by year. This is verse 22. Up until this point, you have laws on eating. Now he's going to tell you about traveling with food, carrying food, and giving food. Thou shalt eat before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose to place which he shall choose to place thy, uh, his name there, the tithe of thy corn, of thy wine, of thy oil, and the firstlings of thy herds and thy flocks, that thou mayest learn to fear the Lord thy God always. Israel was commanded to give 10% of their animals, the firstling of their flock, 10% of their corn, 10% of their wine, 10% of their oil, if you can't carry it on your journey, sell it, take the money. Summarizing verses 24 and 25 of Deuteronomy 14. Thou shalt bestow that money for whatever thy soul lusteth after. Whatever it is that you want, go buy with the money that you have and eat and rejoice with your household. 
By the way, that tells us that God's word says that it's good that a man enjoys the fruit of his labor. It is an acceptable thing with God for you to enjoy the fruit of your labor and then to do what else he's commanded you to do with your finances, and that is to care for the poor, and in this case, the Levite. As he comes to the summary of all of this, all of these various tithes that they had, and 10% of the oil, 10% of the crop, 10% of the wine, he begins to explain why. The Levite, you're going to give it to him because he has no land inheritance. The stranger, you mean part of that 10% was to care for people that were passing through Israel? God cared for the alien who's passing through. The fatherless, that's an orphan. Christians ought to care for orphans. And the widow, which is to say a woman whose husband has died. And of the many things God's New Testament commands us to do, caring for the widows is one that actually falls under the church's responsibility as an actual command. In other words, it's non-negotiable. The church is to financially care for widows. They shall come, they shall eat, they shall be satisfied. The Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hand which thou doest. This is not a curse. This is a blessing. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, you all know that, and you're all a very giving congregation. But I want you to see what Ruth is talking about when she says, I'm going to go find someone in whose eyes that I can find grace. At this point, she's not considering redemption and a near kinsman redeemer. She's thinking of how are we going to eat? You've got two widow women who have no means to take care of themselves, and God is going to provide for them through this godly man, Boaz. Now, we've got to move very quickly. Ruth goes into this field, and she's gleaning. Now, his hired workers are there. His chief servant is there who's running the show, running his business affairs for him. The maidens are there, but there's this stranger, Ruth. Now, you might be wondering, does she look like a stranger to them? Remember that Lot was the father of the Moabites. She might not necessarily look very different than them as far as her complexion, her hairstyle, the clothes that she wore, but she's a stranger. He doesn't know her. He's never met her before. Boaz comes into the field. He came from Bethlehem, and we have introduced for us this character of Boaz. He says unto the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless thee. Notice the salutation that he and they give each other. The Lord be with you. God bless you. These are God-fearing people. Then said Boaz unto his servant that was over the reapers, whose damsel is this? Who is this woman? Now, she might have stood out to him because she was a stranger, and he sees the same people every day in the field, and there's a possibility that she stood out to him by way of her beauty. He looks at her, and he says, Who is this woman who is gathering in my field? One of his servants that was set over the reapers answered him, and 
said it is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. Now, it's obvious by what Boaz would say to her later when she asks him, why are you being so kind to me, that the servant informed Boaz, or perhaps others had informed Boaz about Ruth. They knew, he knew, he had heard of her faithfulness, her godliness, how good of a woman she was, her righteousness. This is the Moabitish damsel, Ruth. Ruth comes up to Boaz and she begins to ask him questions. And as we begin to see how Boaz speaks to her, the thing that I want to emphasize for you today is that this is a godly man. Last week, ladies, I said to you that Ruth is an example of a role model for young women. Be like Ruth. Even when she goes out into the field, notice what she says to Naomi, let me now go to the field. She's respectful to Naomi even then. Men, Young men and old men, Boaz is an example to you of a godly man, a righteous man. She comes up to Boaz and she says, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Now, she had apparently been made familiar through Naomi or through someone else of the provisions in Israel to care for the poor. I pray you let me glean and gather after the reapers. In other words, the law was you're not allowed to completely glean everything. You have to leave something, and the things that land on the ground, they're to be left for the fatherless, the widow, the stranger, the poor. They're to go in and they're to gather. She comes up to Boaz and she says, May I please glean after the reapers have gone through? She's not presumptuous. She doesn't stomp herself in there, stamp herself in there and say, I demand that you give me the corners of your field. She's a godly woman. He is a godly man. When both parts of the equation use godly speech, one with the other, you find the world is a better place. You have two very polite, godly people carrying on a conversation here. She came and continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. Boaz said unto Ruth, Heareth thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. What does Boaz tell her? Don't you go anywhere else. Don't go anywhere else. You don't need to go to my neighbor. You don't need to go to someone across the town of Bethlehem. You don't need to go to another outskirt. You stay right here. I'm going to take care of you. Did he owe her anything? Well, according to the law of God, the corners of the field. But he feels himself indebted to help her because he is a righteous man. Oh, that we would have such a similar heart that we would feel it our privilege and our joy to give someone something of our substance when they stand in need. Maybe we should have the Boaz perspective as we read the words of Paul in Romans chapter 1, that he considered himself a debtor to bring the gospel of Christ to the Jew and to the Gentile. 
I said a couple of weeks ago that we as believers are to be a counterculture. This is one way how we do that. Boaz tells you, you're not going to go to another field. He welcomes her. He's not begrudging with his generosity to her. The next thing that he does, and you young men, I want you to listen to this. He tells her, he says, let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, his maidens. Go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men, listen, that they shall not touch thee? He commanded the young men who worked in his field that they would not lay a hand on her. These men were commanded to treat her with respect. Young men, the word of God would have you to treat women with respect. Boaz is a godly man, and one of the things that he insists upon is that women be treated with respect, that, ne- that Ruth would not be taken advantage of or injured in any way as she gleaned in those fields. I've commanded you. And had they done something, he would have dealt with them according to the law, and it would not be pretty. Don't you touch her. He tells her, when you're thirsty, drink of that which the young men have drawn. He cares for her in many ways. He shows a godly concern for her well-being. This is how a real man ought to be. She begins to ask him. She falls on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said, Why have I found grace in thy eyes, that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? Why would you be so kind to me, Boaz? He says, It's been fully showed me that thou hast done what thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, how thou hast left thy father and thy mother, the land of thy nativity, and are come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given unto thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Boaz says, I have heard how faithful and godly you are, and it is my privilege to help you. She's a proselyte. Remember that word we taught you last week? A convert to worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who came to be among Israel, much like Rahab, a proselyte. Boaz doesn't stop there. Notice what he says unto her. At mealtime, come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip of the morsel in vinegar, thy morsel in vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed, and left. He not only says, glean all you want, he says, I want you to come here with my servants, my reapers, my employees, and I want you to eat until you are full with my servants. He feeds her before he sends her on. This is a godly man. She was risen up to glean. Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even as much as the sh- among the sheaves and reproach her not. Let her have everything she wants. You care for her, because I have said so. I want you to notice 
some more beautiful language from the book of Ruth. Last week, the language was in Ruth's reply to Naomi, thy people shall be my people, thy land my land, thy God my God. He commands these men, let her glean even among the sheaves and reproach her not. Listen to this. And let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her and leave there that she may glean them and rebuke her not. What is the phrase that I want you to learn today? Handfuls of purpose. Handfuls of purpose. Purposefully... When you gather the corn, when you gather the crop, purposefully drop good produce on the ground here and there that she may be able to pick it up and take it home to provide for Naomi. Intentionally make it easy for her because I care for her. Now, as we think about handfuls of purpose, and it's 11.36, we won't be much longer in our message because we want to dismiss with plenty of time before noon. I want you to think about the book of James, wherein James says that every good and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God does leave us handfuls of purpose along our way that we come to, we glean, we partake of, and we find nourishment from. God cares for us the same way that Boaz cares for Ruth and Naomi. This is a beautiful picture of the providence of God in our own daily lives. When we are downcast, when we are afflicted, when we find calamity, God does provide. God provides. The handfuls of purpose, beautiful as a phrase as it is, depict for us and represent for us God's provision in our own lives. Finally, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 18, Ruth returns to Naomi. Her mother-in-law says, Where hast thou gleaned today? Where hast thou wroughtest? Where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that took knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought. The man's name is Boaz. Now at this point in the narrative, Naomi's bitterness is lifted and she is delivered. She is saved by hope. It's the first time since all of the calamity took place in her life that her disposition cheers up in this narrative. Naomi's spirits are lifted. Look at God's provision. Maybe, maybe I was wrong. Maybe God isn't dealing bitterly with me. Remember how bitter Naomi was in the previous chapter as compared to Ruth, who was so faithful. Naomi hears the man's name. Blessed be the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. What do you mean the kindness unto the dead? Naomi then goes on to say, the man is our near kinsman. One of our next kinsmen, Naomi's eyes begin to look for what God would eventually do in this circumstance in having mercy even unto the dead by raising up seed unto the dead through near kinsman redemption. The very thing that 
depicts the Lord Jesus in this beautiful story. Ruth goes on to tell Naomi the rest of this story. Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, that they did meet thee not in any other field. This is not just happenstance. God is working. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of the barley harvest and of the wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. As we conclude our message today, there are a couple of points that I want to leave you with. Number one, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, men folk, be a Boaz. Be a man who takes care of those who are around you, who welcomes others, who loves others, who goes out of his way to care for those who were downcast, who have suffered calamity in this world that they did not bring upon themselves. Generous, charitable, hardworking, loving, righteous, and godly. And finally, to the Naomi's of the world, there is always hope. She suffered things that I hope I never experience in this life. The loss of a husband. Of course, I will never experience the loss of a husband. Every one of you can laugh at me right now. The loss of a spouse. I pray I never lose my spouse. But after losing her spouse, she lost her children. I pray that I never lose children. But no matter what takes place in this world, beloved, God is not done with you yet, and all of the sufferings of this world combined are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us in the second coming of Christ. And we are saved by that hope. Naomi found hope, and that hope saved her. There is always hope. Consider as we close how much different Naomi's perspective is here than it was at the conclusion of the following chapter. I look forward to studying the remainder of this book with you and looking at God's further providence in the lives of these two, Naomi and Ruth, and even how we begin to draw closer to the conclusion of the book where we begin to draw closer to God's messianic will in the world as he sets it up even to bring, as we read, Obed and Jesse and David, out of whose loins the Lord Jesus Christ himself would come into the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the godly examples that we read of here in the book of Ruth. Lord, that godly young woman, Ruth, who took care of her mother-in-law when she could have gone back to her former way of life and her former false gods and her former wickedness, but, Lord, you had called her out of that, and what great faith you gave her. Lord, we thank you for the godly example of Boaz, who was a man that took care of this stranger, this woman, after hearing of her faithfulness and her care for Naomi. Father, we pray that as men, as we lead up next week to Father's Day, that we as fathers would be like this godly man, Boaz. Let it begin with us, and let it begin today. We thank you, Father, for the glimpse of hope that Naomi received at the end of this chapter. And Lord, it reminds us that even when things in the world begin to crumble all around us, you haven't left us. 
You haven't forsaken us. And in the end, Lord, all the sufferings that we experience accumulated throughout our entire lives aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us as joint heirs with our near kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus. We ask that you dismiss us now in thy watch care, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.